Wow. Uh, been coming to the church. It was a year in June, and I remember meeting with Pastor Merlin. The second week I came here, I loved the church, and I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of looking around for a church. I'm scared because I think I love this church. I just need to meet with the pastor immediately. I came right after work at the trailer factory. I looked and probably smelled disgusting. And we sat in Pastor Merlin's office and talked for three hours. And uh, I, I just instantly fell in love with the man. And I remember asking him, like, if you think me and my family will be a good fit here, we'd like to come here. But if not, I'm totally fine with that because I actually believe the pastor has that authority. And he got this smile on his face. He's like, I think it'll be great. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So we've been here ever since. I am honored to speak to you guys today. I kind of can't believe it. I've been telling my wife all week, like, this seems surreal. I can't believe they actually wanted me to talk. And then it seemed intimidating. So <laughs> please pray for me. I think I've got a great message. But before I get into it, I want to give a disclaimer that I give every time I speak at a new place. I grew up in church. Whenever I saw a guest speaker, especially one that got up and spoke with authority, I had this thought, who does that guy think he is? Like, I don't know this dude from Adam. I didn't grow up with him. I haven't seen him for years. And he's trying to tell me how to live my life. And I would get this feeling of, I don't want to listen to this dude just because he says I should. So to you this morning, I want to say, you shouldn't listen to me just because I say you should. In fact, I'm not even going to say that. What I'm going to say is, my notes are available upon request, and please go to the Word and verify uh, what I'm going to say this morning. I think that that level of scrutiny is not only appropriate, but necessary. So please feel free, and I am not at all offended. So please do that. Uh, I was a pastor for a little over five years in Kalamazoo, Michigan. My wife and I started a church over there. It was a satellite of another congregation. We assembled the leadership team. We cast the vision. We started meeting in downtown Kalamazoo with no air conditioning and no parking and no sign. And uh, we were faithful for five years and some stuff happened. I can tell you all about it, but now is not the time for that story. But God is still good. I got some good experience. Uh, I was not, in the end, a good fit for that denomination or culture, but that's okay. That's okay. I've got a seminary degree, if that matters to you. It was both fun and terrible at the same time. And uh, that's who I am. More information available upon request. Feel free to scrutinize me and the message. Amen? Let's dive right in. Guys, this morning, I want to talk about the thing I've wanted to talk about since Merlin asked me to speak months ago, and that is this, the paradox of blessing. The paradox of blessing. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition, something that looks like it doesn't make sense. But the thing about a paradox is it's not a real contradiction. When you understand all the elements of a paradox, you come to the conclusion that it actually does make sense. But on the surface, it seems like there's too much conflict. Does that make sense? Blessing, God's blessing, entails a certain amount of paradox. Now, this might be a long message. I'm sorry. I'm also sorry I don't have a slideshow. Normally I do, but it was a busy week. But I'm just going to go straight through it, and uh, you'll see where it becomes a little sticky. Point number one this morning, and this is going to sound awfully prosperity gospelish because that twisting of the truth is actually based on a kernel of truth. And here's the kernel. Point number one, God wants to bless his people. 
He wants to bless his people. How far back does this go? This goes back to the beginning. The very first thing God does after he makes people, this is in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. In 26, God says we should make people. In 27, God makes people. In 28, it says God blessed them. We should make people. We make people. We bless people. Boom, boom, boom. God wants to bless his people. And what was the blessing, by the way? Was it like a new notebook with a fancy pen? Was it maybe a new car? It was literally the entire world. <laughs> Verses 1, Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You've just been created. I know you were dust 10 seconds ago, but good news, you are now the CEOs of pretty much everything. So enjoy that. And you may say, if you've ever been the boss at work, that's not a very good blessing, really. You know, that, that seems like more responsibility than blessing and good thinking. You're actually jumping ahead. But the point remains, it says, God bless them and he gives them the world. Now they kind of messed that up. So when God wants to create a people all for himself, he starts with a guy named Abraham. That's right. This is what he says when he shows up to Abraham. Genesis 12, one, three to seven. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's a ton of blessing God wants to bless. Makes people, blesses them. Starts over to make a new people for himself. First thing he does blesses him and tells him he will be blessed. And then just a few verses later, he actually shows up to Abraham again a second time and reiterates that to your descendants, I will give this land. So not necessarily the whole world this time, but a pretty good chunk of real estate God is blessing his people with. When God's people are on the doorstep of the promised land, he reiterates all the ways he wants to bless his people in Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 14. I'm not going to read it all. And the Old Testament nerds among us know that the second half of Deuteronomy 28 is not nearly so fun, but hold that thought. And 1 to 14, he tells his people all the ways he wants to bless them. Spoiler, it's every way you can think of. In fact, verse 14, excuse me, 11, is a very good summary for the whole section. God just says this, I am going to make you abound in prosperity. Deuteronomy 28, 11. Now, in case we think that that's got just God's disposition in the Old Testament to bless his people, the new covenant people get it even better. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 to 3 says this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's a lot of blessing. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in him, in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And someone is already thinking, you cheater, you switched. 
you switch from the material blessings of the Old Testament to these spiritual blessings in the New Testament. Good eye, you caught that, fantastic. But the point I'm trying to make is that God's intention, his disposition towards us, what he wants for his people is the same. And that is blessing. Point number one, and we have to start here. It's going to get less fun, by the way. I'm sorry, that's just the way it tends to go. But point one is God wants to bless his people. However, as you read these verses, you start to realize that God did not have a meeting with Adam and Eve and ask their opinion on whether or not they would like to be blessed with the entire world. Also missing is the part where God says, Abram, I've got this idea, what do you think? He did this with Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But he doesn't do that when he decides to give him this gigantic chunk of real estate. He just doesn't. The same thing when the Israelites are gonna go into the promised land. He simply tells them what is going to happen and what he will do. You are going to be blessed beyond your comprehension. Every need is going to be met. And Paul doesn't say that Jesus came down and asked us our our opinion either. You just are blessed with all the blessings in the heavenly places. We need to restate point number one as this, and this is much heavier. God has decided to bless us, and he did not ask our opinion first. We are blessed, every one of us in this room, whether we want to be or not. We are blessed blessed. So at this point, I have to make a caveat. If God wants to bless you, and I'm making this grand statement that you are blessed because God decided and he didn't even ask you first, there are a lot of messages that could be preached and should be preached right here that I don't have time for. But let me just address that because it becomes the elephant in the room as I go on. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, if God wants to bless me and he has blessed me, how come I'm struggling financially? How come I'm sick? How come life is hard? How come I look and all these people are faithful in these parts of the world and they don't look like they're living in God's blessing? All of that is something that needs to be addressed and can be addressed faithfully. But today I'm just gonna have to give two points that are gonna kind of have to serve as band-aid truths, okay, to put on that for the time being. Point one that will help with these seeming contradictions is to realize that God is not a fan of and is, in fact, opposed to the idea of equity. This is a gigantic buzzword in our culture today. Something has to be equitable, and equity means, in that context, even, sameness. No no discrepancy, right? If I've got 10 and you've got five, that's inequity, a term that we now want to use, you know? And if there's inequity, that means there's a problem. God doesn't work that way on purpose. The only thing that God gives people equitably in that sense, and he doesn't use the term, is salvation itself. In salvation, there's not a Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free. Salvation is equal and same to everybody who gets it. You are equally in the kingdom, but nothing else is. Not finances, not talents, not where you live, not judgment, and not even final reward. Whole nother message, don't have time, but I trust, scrutinize, remember I told you, scrutinize the new guy, okay? Look it up, it's true. I could preach all of this out of Matthew 25, but I've decided to go into the Old Testament because I'm a dork, so that's what we're doing. 
Lose the idea that equity is good or pursued by God. That will help. The second thing we have to realize is that a good metaphor for the Christian life is the soldier who is currently deployed, not on leave. That means there's going to be some good times. There's going to be some comfort. There might be some times to enjoy ourselves. You know, we might have some really good potlucks and some pecan pie. But the demands of the mission can supersede my desire to go relax in a hot tub at any moment and frequently does. So God still blesses us, but you know, a soldier who's blessed in a combat zone might consider more ammo a blessing and not necessarily a new car. God will bless us with what we need to get through the difficult times that we're in. Does that make sense? I apologize that I can't go into all the necessary things here, but please just take those two points. God wants to bless you, and in fact, he's decided to, and you are blessed whether you want to be or not. The last fun point of the message, and then we just descend into gloom, man, just like a plane go, not really, no, but this is the fun one, and man, there are some people here, and you just need to hear this. You're gonna resist it, because the people that need to hear this point are the ones that will try not to hear it. I, I, I know this is true. The people that need to hear this point are the ones who will beat themselves up with the second half of the message that they don't even really need to be here for, Okay? Here's the point. Number three, enjoyment of your blessings is mandatory. Enjoying what God has blessed you with is not optional. In fact, if you wanted to be in the people of God in the Old Testament, it was mandated that you go to God's house once a year for a barbecue. I will back this up with scripture. I remember when I read this scripture I was sitting in the living room of my mentor's house, actually, reading my paperback copy of the 1995 New American Standard because I'm a grown-up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. That was a shot. It was shameless. I read this. I put the Bible down. I went and talked to them. I'm like, did you know this was in here? And they were like, wow. It's like you have all these mature believers. It's like we've never read Deuteronomy 14 ever. Okay, here it is. Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. This is... Moses talking about how they were going to tithe. You guys know the tithe is worship, right? That's one of the ways we show worship to God. Do you know what the tithe entailed? It wasn't just going and dropping off a bunch of money in a bad mood because you had to part with 10%. Listen to this. You shall surely tithe. Again, this is Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of your field every year. You shall... Eat, stop, you get to eat. Did you know that? Yeah. You shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name. The tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. You don't just drop it off. You barbecue the firstborn of the flock. It's a party. It's a celebration that's implied here, but he makes it really obvious later. So you show up, you drop off the tithe, that's great. And then he says, this is why you're doing it. Please hear this, church, this is super important. You do this, you have a barbecue at God's house so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Bear that in mind. Now this is chunk of people number one, the people that live right by the temple, wherever it's gonna be, and they could actually bring their oxen, right? But if you lived far away from the temple, 
you can't just bring 10% of your herds. I mean, it's kind of, it would be ridiculous. That'd be a long trip too. So God makes a provision. Listen to this craziness. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the, place you, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from where you live when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and just go and drop off the cash. Oh no, it gets so much better. Because remember, we have to have a celebration. You shall exchange it for money, bind the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So you're going to the temple. You may spend the money for something very smart and wise. No, you may spend the money for whatever your heart desires. It's Deuteronomy, I swear it's in there. Deuteronomy 14, you can check in your Bible. For whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or, not trying to pick a fight, or wine or strong drink. It actually says, or strong drink, in the Bible. And where do we go with it? You may buy strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and, who's there? What's that next word? Rejoice. Rejoice. I have been guilty in my life of giving the tithe like this. Faithfulness, being faithful, 10%, there you go. Don't know where it's going. I've never had the tithe described to me like this. I mean, okay, we can talk about whether or not it's a New Testament principle, but seriously, would we be more up for this if Pastor Merlin was like, hey, it's tithe week. Everybody come to my house. Be sure to bring something to drink and barbecue. I mean, I think we could get behind that, amen? Maybe we could like take a vote on it. I don't know. Pastor Merlin, if you're listening, I'm, I'm all about it. So there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household, and don't neglect the Levite who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. If you're an Old Testament nerd, you know the Levites, their inheritance was the Lord. So the people kind of took care of them extra. So 10% of your money is a lot. How, I mean, that's way too much to spend just on me. And so God is like, I've got the solution. We'll just make it a bigger party because, you know, God comes to the party, but he doesn't eat much, you know? So invite the Levites too. And so you're having a party in the house of God with God's servants rejoicing and the rejoicing is part of the command. The rejoicing is part of the command. You are not fulfilling God's command to honor and worship him with your tithe unless you're having a good time doing it. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this can go wrong about one million and six different ways, right? I'm not advocating sin, neither is God. That's out of the question immediately. This is happening in the presence of the Lord. People have been burned alive spontaneously in the presence of the Lord for doing stuff wrong. So don't think there's any funny business going on, okay? So don't, don't get the wrong idea about that. Uh, don't think this is permission to be indulgent. That's not the case. We're going to talk about that later. But here is my point. Some of us are faithful with our finances to an extreme extent. You have, I don't know what you have, it's not my business, but you have a four, five, six, seven-digit savings account. You're doing everything right. You're giving to missions. You have a heart for your community. But it is murder for you to buy something you want just because you want it. It is tough for you to splurge. If you need X thing, 
you like, you can afford the best one, but you, you would just never do that. Oh my gosh, because then I'd have to justify my expenditure. If this is you, I have to set you free today. You are going to honor God by splurging a little bit. And instead of feeling guilty about the steak dinner or the new shotgun or whatever it is, I want you to say, thank you, Lord, because I recognize that the funds and the blessing and the increase that I use to get this thing comes from you. You are my source. And every time I use this thing, every time I enjoy it, as I eat this perfectly cooked ribeye and my heart swells with gratitude, please take that as an act of worship because I know it's you that's giving me this joy. There are some people in here today that need to do only this. And if that's you, please do it and don't fight it because everyone else is gonna wish they were you by the end of the message. So it's the least you can do for the rest of us. Amen? I'm keeping track of who said amen. So I know you <laughs> ask you what you bought. God wants to bless you. He didn't ask your opinion. You're blessed whether you wanna be or not. Enjoying the blessings is part of the way we honor God with what we have. Now the contradiction, not the contradiction, the paradox kind of enters into it. Are God's blessings good? Yes. We know that God gives good things, right? I'm gonna read the passage because it, it pertains. James 1, 13 to 17. This is very important in what I'm about to say. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God doesn't tempt people. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Who tempts people according to this passage? Ourselves. Thank you very much. That's right. You know, it's interesting, and I'll say this here. Some people are like, the devil's really tempted me, man. When the devil shows up to tempt you, he brings gasoline and a bellows, but he doesn't have to bring a match because that fire of fallenness is already burning, okay? So just bear that in mind. Then when the lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God only gives good things. God will not tempt you. Here's the paradox, the seeming contradiction. Point four, God's blessings can lead you astray. God's blessings can lead you astray, but they're good and they're perfect. Yeah, they are. But God wants to bless us. In fact, wait a minute, time out. You said he already gave me blessings he didn't ask my opinion, and now you're telling me that these blessings can lead me astray? Yes. Hence, the paradox of blessing. But remember, a paradox is not a contradiction. When understood correctly, a paradox makes sense. We're going to read a passage now. Uh, if, th if there's one passage you take out of this whole message, you could just go to Deut or Matthew 25, but don't do that. Join me in my nerdery. It's Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8. Many people, let me just read it. I'm going to read Deuteronomy 8, 6 to 14. But here's the deal. I'm going to leave out verse 6, verse 10, and verse 11. Because by reading this passage and leaving out these key verses, I am going to describe 
many Christians' real attitudes about wealth by leaving out some of the truth of Scripture. And then we'll read it in its complete form. Here we go in the modified version that describes too many of us. Too many of us. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten and are satisfied and you've built good houses and lived in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That is a true contradiction. That you're gonna get all this great stuff, you know it comes from God, You're obligated to give him credit, and it's going to undo me, right? And you can look at wealthy people and be like, I know they're going to fall because they bought a BMW instead of a Honda. They're starting to get a little wealthy. You know, we know what happens next every single time. You know, you get a little padding in that bank account, bam, there goes the faith, right? That would be a contradiction. This is what the word actually says. Deuteronomy 8, 6 to 14, not omitting anything. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and to fear him. That's one. Why? For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. He's saying, you better remember me. Remember to live my way because I'm about to bless you and I didn't ask your opinion and you're gonna get it. So remember to live my way. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Sounds a lot like the tithe, doesn't it? Don't forget to bless the Lord. Remember the source. Keep his commandments. Bless the Lord for these good things. And at 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied, et cetera, et cetera, you will forget the Lord your God. God is about to give his people, hear me now, please, a very dangerous gift. The very dangerous gift that God is about to give his people is a good and perfect gift. God's good and perfect gifts are frequently, and I would argue almost exclusively, potentially dangerous gifts. God does not say, avoid this gift because it's potentially dangerous. He says, remember me. He doesn't say shun the blessing. He says embrace the blessing and heed the warning. Embrace the blessing and heed the warning. Who in here has received a gun from their dad or their grandfather? Okay, let me just ask you, was that one of the best things you ever got in your whole life? Was that a good gift? It was at the time? I'm sorry. (laughs) 
Seems like there's a longer story there. Would you like? No, I'm... How about a knife? Anybody ever gotten a knife as a gift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cars. Anybody ever gotten a car as a gift? No. Well, oh, awesome. Now let me ask you this: Can those things go wrong? Is a gun a safe gift? Is a knife a safe gift? How about like a three thousand pound sled of death that we call cars? Are those are those safe? But they're awesome, right? So this isn't the way we live real life. Like, we give our own children very dangerous things, and we don't stop to think, well, maybe it's not a good thing because it's kind of dangerous. No, man, when my grandfather gave me my first rifle, it was a Marlin Lever Action 3030. I was like, this is amazing. This is like the best thing I've ever gotten my whole life. Now, I used it appropriately. I had a roommate one time who was drunk and high and found it and loaded it and went outside with it and was aiming at cars. Suddenly, my good and perfect gift is quite the dangerous thing, is it not? God will give you good things that are dangerous things. He doesn't demand that you shun the gift. You're blessed whether you want it or not. He demands wisdom. He demands maturity. And he demands that you remember him. I want to take a brief moment here to talk about the link In verse 11, it says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances. Beware that you don't forget the Lord by not keeping his commandments and ordinances. Shorthand, that would be Torah. Okay? Torah in the Old Testament did not function as a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't cold, hard law with no soul behind it. You know? It functioned in a very interesting way. And I'm going to read a quote right now from a book that I recommend for pretty much anybody that studies the Old Testament. It's called Old Testament Theology, a Thematic Approach by Robin Routledge. And he's saying when you come into this land and all of a sudden you've been slaves, but now you're not going to want anything. You're going to be blessed beyond measure. Remember my character. Don't just remember that I exist. Remember who I am and still strive to act like me in your blessing. Does that make sense? Amen. That takes wisdom and it's tough. But God will give you dangerous things. And he expects you to be big boys and girls. And he expects us to have some wisdom and enjoy the dangerous things while living wisely. All right. I have beat that to death. Let's go on to the next one. Number five. God doesn't just bless you without asking your permission With blessings, they're actually kind of dangerous and need to be handled correctly. He judges you at the end. (laughs) Oh, gosh, you might want to opt out, right, at this point, but point two stands. He's going to bless you whether you want it to or not. Yeah, they're dangerous, and you have to use them correctly. It's kind of a test. People are like, well, God wouldn't test me. He will. He will. And you can pass or you can fail. And wealth and blessing is a test that we will pass or fail. The benefits of passing the wealth test are amazing. The consequences of failure are terrifying. This is one of those situations where I wish it was not so, but it is. And so we're benefited if we look at it, all right? Let's just look at it. We have to use our blessings well. Rejoicing for the blessing of the Lord is part of it, but so is proactively using them correctly. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like, first and foremost, I'm going to say this, it looks like increasing it. Oh, stop. That's that prosperity gospel nonsense. It isn't. It's that 
Bible sense, okay? Matthew 25, 19 to 21. We're finally going into the New Testament. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And to the one who had received the five talents, the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter the joy of your master. I don't want to press it too hard because it's a parable. But the way he made his master happy was by increasing the gift. He was blessed with a certain amount. He used the blessing wisely and got more. And that made God happy. If you see someone who's doing well financially and they just keep making wise business decisions, maybe they keep starting new businesses, maybe they just keep buying the, you know, smart stocks, and you see their wealth going up and up and up and up and up, and you think to yourself, surely at some point God is going to rebuke this person for having so much wealth, you are in exactly the opposite mindset of the master in Matthew 25. You just need to use it correctly. So increase it. And if that doesn't settle it for you, how about this? Proverbs 13, 22. A good man, what kind of man? A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, I suppose you could argue that the goodness of the man is the inheritance. And it's contrasting that with the wicked people who store up money. Okay, you know, you could make that argument. But in light of the rest of the scripture, I don't think that's accurate. I think he's just saying a smart person is smart with his money. And so his children and his grandchildren are the beneficiaries of his financial intelligence. And that's a mark of being a good person. Paul echoes this principle in the New Testament. When he's talking to the Corinthians and he's trying to reaffirm his authority and he's like, I'm like your spiritual father. I don't know who these posers are, but remember, you're my spiritual kids and I'm your spiritual dad. And when I come to you, I don't charge you for anything. I'm not a burden to you. And this is the reason he gives in 2 Corinthians 12, 14. For the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you for I do not seek what is yours, but you for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for the children. Tough to do that if you aren't increasing the blessing that God has given you. Now, if you found that tough or you've fallen on hard times, there are a bunch of messages that can be taught here too. I've got good parents. We also had a bankruptcy and we lost a house. Okay? Let's just be real. If God's intention in the Old Testament was to bless everybody, they'd be the head and not the tail. How come there's also provisions in the law for the needy among you? The real world has been the real world since the beginning. So please don't think I'm insulting you if you don't have like a six or seven figure savings account. That's ridiculous. That's not me. I expect that's not most of us here, but I'm talking about a principle of pleasing God. Pleasing God. Using your blessings wisely and increasing it is one of the ways we make him pleased. Here's the second way. And I think this is where we could use the most work. You have to be a conduit of the blessing. You got a bunch of water over here, but your field is dry and it's over there. You need a conduit to bring the water all the way over here. You need some sort of irrigation system, right? God's people are called to be that irrigation system in the world. This goes all the way back to his call of Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a blessing. Boom. Boom. If we're not doing this, nothing else will matter. 
you're not gonna stand before God and God's not, and he's gonna say, well, you didn't have much of a savings account. You didn't do a very good job increasing those finances I gave you. I don't think that's gonna happen. I would be shocked, but I do know this. If I stand before God, he's gonna ask or evaluate whether or not I was a conduit of the blessings I was given. That is going to matter to him a great deal. Job is an excellent example I got a little more. Are we doing okay? Kind of go for like 10 more minutes? Yeah? All right. Job is an excellent example of somebody who passed the wealth test in the Old Testament. This is how Job is described in Job 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's pretty good. Not only did he guard his own heart and make sure that he feared God, but it says that when his children would have parties, probably birthday parties, just in case they sinned. He'd be like consecrating and making offerings for his children too. He's guarding his heart. He's guarding his family. And in fact, when God talks about Job in verse eight, he says this, there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. This is an amazing resume of righteousness. Job later tells us what his life is like. He says in Job 29, 12 to 17, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessings of the one ready to perish came upon me and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like robe and a a turban. I was eyes to the blind and my feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth." This is a guy who is just a powerful force for goodness and righteousness and justice everywhere he goes. The guy probably couldn't pass a, a formerly you know, hungry person without him saying, hey, thanks for the meal, man, I really appreciate it. Or the person that didn't have the winter coat is like, Joe, man, I'm still wearing that thing. Thank you for buying it for me. The person that was in lack, that was destitute, if Job came by and he noticed that, he was just the kind of guy who'd be like, can I help? Yes, I can help. I'm going to help. That was the equation. He was known for it, even in heaven, getting this appraisal from God. Here's the catch. Some of us would be bitter and judgy and gossiping about Job. Why? Because the Bible says he was also the greatest of the men in the East. Listen to this. Where's my, ah, here we go. His possessions, 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. He was the greatest man in all the East. He's not only righteous. He's like the Jeff Bezos of his time. He's like the Elon Musk of the ancient world. (laughs) And there are some of us who like, that's all we could see, right, is the wealth. That's, That's coming up, that point. Oh my gosh, it just boggles my mind but he passes the wealth test. He's got a lot, but he's doing a lot. God is honored. Can I get an amen? Amen. If you want to read a scary book of the Bible about people that fail the wealth test, you can read the book of Amos. And that prophet just spends, I think it's nine chapters, beating up primarily wealthy people, but not because the wealthy people are wealthy. Because hopefully you can tell by now that wouldn't make any sense. 
If God intends to bless you and he's gonna bless you whether you want it or not, and in fact, one of the ways you honor him is by increasing the blessing, he wouldn't be very just if he turned around and looked at the blessed people and said, no, that's too much. But these people that Amos is rebuking have done exactly what God said not to do in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Just a brief synopsis. This is Amos 6, 4 to 8. Amos is railing against those who recline on beds of ivory and sprawl on their couches. They eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. They improvise to the sound of the harp. And like David, they're composing songs for themselves. They drink wine from sacrificial bowls and they anoint themselves with the finest of oils. Therefore, oh, excuse me, yet they have not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they will now go into exile at the head of the exiles, and the sprawler's banqueting will pass away. I went to a seminary that was becoming more liberal by the day, and I've been in pastor's meetings where they wanted to use these texts to make people that had some means and had some finances in the congregation basically feel bad, as if Amos is judging these people because they're wealthy. But that's not what the book says. It actually goes on right after that in verse eight to say this, the Lord God has sworn by himself, the Lord God of hosts has declared, I loathe the arrogance of Jacob and detest his citadels. Exactly what God said was gonna happen in Deuteronomy eight happened. They got blessed, they forgot God, they got arrogant. He called it in Deuteronomy eight. Moses said, if you're not careful, if you don't guard Arrogance is going to pop up and all these other nasty things are going to happen. In fact, when he rebukes Judah as a whole in chapter 2, and this is in verse 4 of Amos, he says, this is the reason I'm about to just squash you. He says, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke Judah's punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. That's exactly what God warned about in Deuteronomy 8. So the result is they're going to be deported and many of them will be murdered. So Job does it right, and he's praised by God in heaven. These people think everything's fine, but they've forgotten God, and the penalty is so extreme that when you read about it in Jeremiah and Lamentations, you're like, this can't be real. Actual real people did this kind of stuff to other people? It's terrifying. The stakes have not gone down. In fact, in Matthew 25 and in the corresponding passages in Luke, we see that the penalty for failing the, text of bless, the test of blessing, if anything, is presented as even more stark than it was in the Old Testament because the consequences go on even after death. So hear this, please, guys. If you are not actively being a conduit of God's blessing, don't let all the words I've just talked escape you. you just, just latch on to that. Just take that one thing and go home with the Lord and be like, hey, how can I be a better conduit of your blessing? How can I honor you by using appropriately what you've given me? Just take that with you because the penalty is extreme. I'm gonna read Matthew 25, 41 to 46 because it talks about the kind of people that refuse to be a conduit. And this is their punishment. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it. To one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal, how long? Eternal punishment. But the righteousness to eternal life. We need to be a conduit of God's blessings in our life, church. Amen? See, my disagreement with the prosperity gospel in large part is not that they say false things. It's that they don't finish the thought. It's all points one through three, and four, five, and six are just left out. But this is critical. I want to close with one more thought. You've all been very patient. I apologize for the time. God wants to bless you. If you don't realize that, take that with you for Pete's sake. He does. In fact, he's decided to bless you and he didn't ask your opinion. That means you're blessed. I should do like a very charismatic thing. Everybody say, I am blessed. No, you don't have to do that, but this way, they'd raise their hand. Amen. Three, enjoyment of your blessings is mandatory. All right? Remember the tithe in Deuteronomy 14. Read it again. You won't believe it's in there. But God's blessings are dangerous and they can lead you astray. You have to guard and watch out that they don't. Remember the Lord's character. Remember to reflect him and live his way. Also, we have to be a conduit of God's blessing. We have to use them correctly. And then six, the last point I want to make this morning is that God's blessings test the heart. And they don't just test the heart of the people that receive the blessings. They test the heart of the people that observe the blessings. There's a psalm in the Bible, Psalm 73, and Asaph is writing, and he is almost shipwrecked in the faith. He's almost gone past the point of no return. I'll let him tell it, 73, 1 to 4, and also verses 21 to 22, because he's judging nasty rich people. Listen to this, Psalm 73, 1 to 4, and 21 to 22. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast to you. So he's still operating in this paradigm that blessings are a good thing, right? And he sees these nasty people who have tons of blessings, and the danger is in him because of the bitterness that rises up inside him. And he's like, how can this be? And it almost undoes him. I'm not gonna spend much time on this last point because it's getting away from us a little bit here. But this bitterness can metastasize and become so nasty that we don't just endanger our souls judging the mean people that have money. We endanger our souls judging anyone who has money. This is my, I'm ending, I swear. My mom's church had a missionary from China come to the church and it was talking about how they'd sit there for 8, 10, 12 hours listening to the word on the floor. They're sleeping on the floor. There's no air conditioning. They didn't even want to take breaks to eat, right? And then he says, we wouldn't do that. And he starts berating the American church because they're weak and they're soft and they've been blessed for so long and they couldn't stomach hardship like that. You know, they wouldn't sit there and take this. And he says that these Chinese people, when he leaves, they start praying in joy and thanking God for the American church who funded this missionary to be there, and he rebukes them. He preempts their praise and says, don't thank them. They wouldn't do what you're doing. 
I need to go back there and, you know, you know, help them basically get a spine. And the accusation is this, that, yeah, the American church is funding me being here. Yes, I'm a part of the American church, and I made the journey. Yes, we start nonprofits, and we give, and we feed the hungry and all that. But, but, they've just got it so cozy. God's just blessed them for so long that you take that blessing away, they can't stomach hardship. They'd jettison God like a piece of unnecessary cargo in a shipwreck, man. They'd crumple. They'd throw him right out. Whose dialogue is that? Anybody? Well, I'll just read it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord. Who did? Satan just take the comfort away. He's got nothing. Just looks like he's got substance. He's weak. You've just given him too much of a good life for too long. And you know, God's response is, I'll take that bet. Go ahead and do it. So he takes all that Job has. And again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves. And the Lord said to Satan, where do you come from? And Satan says, roaming around on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him without cause. Satan's response? Well, he might not have any more money, but he's still healthy. I mean, if he was in misery physically, like the guy was just so rich for so long. This is Jeff Bezos. This is Donald Trump. He only knows what it's like to sit on plush leather seats. Man, give him some boils. He'll turn on you in a minute. What does God say? Go ahead, I'll take that bet. He never does. In fact, he maintains his integrity to such an extent that God's response to Job's three foolish friends is that Job has spoken what is right about me and I don't even wanna hear from you people, but my servant Job will offer an apology for you. He'll offer a sacrifice and I'll accept him. He's accepted in the beginning. He's accepted at the end. So I wanna make this as my parting point. If we are concerned that the blessings of the Lord are indeed beginning to lead us astray, like Moses warned in Deuteronomy 8, if there's a concern in your heart, not just for yourself, but the American church as a whole, pray for strength. Pray for a shifting of priorities. Maybe get up and preach about it. But let's not judge and condemn. Don't, don't steal Satan's dialogue and insult the bride of Christ in an effort to get in God's good graces. That just doesn't make any sense. Amen? Amen. So to recap, God wants to bless you. He has blessed you. You didn't get to choose. He didn't ask your opinion. Enjoying God's blessing is a form of worship. If you're not doing that, please go do it. Order the steak. Buy the gun. Worship the Lord. We won't be mad at you. God's blessings can lure us astray if we're not careful. So guard yourself. God's blessings entail a stern appraisal. So please be a conduit. And lastly, God's blessings test the heart of the receivers and the observers. So be aware of the situation of your heart before the Lord as you embrace both the blessings and the warnings given about them.